Hello, welcome to the Troopany Show. My name is James Troopany. This is my show. And today, we're going back to the Beginner's Guide to Professional Wrestling in Japan with episode 51, I think. Or, yes, somewhere along those lines. I'll have to check and make sure. But yeah, we are in, uh, we're going back to the Beginner's Guide to Professional Wrestling. Now, we know there were some big retirements in New Japan this week, but I want to concentrate on them next week. We've got a bit more space to talk about them and people have caught up with the shows because obviously Nakanishi, old lumpy, retired yesterday and Tiger Ritori retired midweek. There were some big things to talk about on those shows. But we'll get to where everyone's had a chance and we'll go back to the Beginner's Guide because we know you appreciate the Beginner's Guide perhaps more than anything else. Now, we did have a request to do a profile on Akira Hokuto. We haven't had time to do that either because <laughs> I needed specific people and they weren't available. So instead, we've done a show with Akira Okuto on it. And it turns out to be one of the most important professional wrestling cards of the late 20th century. And to join me to discuss it is Mr. John Dinsdale of your Steel Chair magazine. How are you, sir? I'm doing I'm well. well. You uh, now, definitely gave me a good show to watch this time. Yes. Now, this is Gaia. We haven't talked about Gaia as a company on the Beginner's Guide yet, mainly because they don't do very many complete shows on YouTube or Daily Motion or anywhere else. It tends to be good matches because they had a good TV deal. They were on TV in Europe, in the UK, on the Wrestling Channel. They were on TV in Japan. And they didn't do too many big events as like most of it was TV events. It wasn't like a straight-to-video product like FMW, which was a video product. And they didn't quite do as many like video shows. So... There isn't as much stuff to watch that's organized neatly into nice pay-per-views. But the one that is, is the Double Destiny. That was their big show of the year, which from Yokohama Bunker Gymnasium and attracted 6,300. That was a sellout crowd for one of the most important matches, which saw a main event of the breakup of the Crush Girls, Chigasaw Nagayo against Linus Asuka in an absolutely thrilling professional wrestling match, which we'll talk about at the end. But this was Gaia's big angle. Now, Gaia had started in 1995 when Chigasa had decided she'd had enough of her quiet retirement into, the, into professional wrestling and decided to start her own promotion. She had a little bit of help with Age of All Japan Women who were keen to have the cross-promotional angle going on with a new company. She started her own dojo, which produced some quite good professional wrestlers who we'll talk about on this card. And... They went on to be the second biggest company in Joshi and arguably one of the biggest drawing and most talked about companies in professional wrestling at the time. John, what are your thoughts on Gaia from what you've known of the company and what's your thoughts on the company as you see it through this card without giving away the results or anything? What were your th expectations going in when I sent you this video? The Gaia was a company where I'd heard of the wrestlers, but I'd never really known much about the company. So... Once I um, sort of got into it and I saw I saw the crowd, I was kind of like, well, this is rather big. And then <laughs> when I actually saw the wrestling style and the sort of nice mix of what I'm going to call Joshi violence and technical ability, it, it did just feel like a proper professional company. I guess I'll say it that way. Yeah, I mean... There was very little in the way of aerial stuff in this style, is there? It's all ground and pound, submission, throwing people around in suplexes, on the mat kind of wrestling, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of flippy stuff in a couple of the tag matches coming up. They definitely yeah. like using scaffolding, which I'm a fan of. <laughs> so, Gaia sets off on this path of trying to be different from its All Japan Women roots. 
trying to have its stamp of its owner, Chigasaw Nagayo. We have talked about Gaia Girls when we did our Mako Satamura um, uh, episode. And this, actually, the stuff in this is on the Gaia, that was featured on this card, is in the Gaia Girls film. A lot of the matches from around this time was when Kimon Janito was shooting Gaia Girls in, in the, obviously, the year before, because Gaia Girls comes out in 2000, and this was in 1999. And certainly the work with Mako Satamura and Sonoka Keita and Toshiyu Matsu, who were on this card, come from that particular period. And the first thing that strikes me about this wrestling style from this company is it just doesn't slow down, ever. Like, literally, from the moment the opening bell goes on Sonoki Kato versus Toshiyu Matsu to the moment the final bell on the main event rings, if they aren't doing wrestling, there's nothing happening. It's just people walking to the ring. And then the moment the bell rings, there's wrestling of the highest order, as fast as humanly possible, for 20 minutes until the bell goes. Would you agree there, John? Does it seem like incredibly fast-paced to you, or is it me? No, it's definitely very sort of balls-to-the-wall, fast and furious. We can't have a slow moment. It's almost like they're treating the audience as if they've got like very small attention spans. You don't get these sort of drag-out bits. You don't get heel-stalling tactics. It's just... Right, get in there, punch each other in the face, lock each other up, throw each other about. When the bell rings, then you can stop. <laughs> well, let's go through these matches and let's start there. It starts off with Sonoki Kato and Toshi Umatsu. 16 minutes and 38 seconds of a breathtaking wrestling match. Toshi Umatsu, by that point, had already made her debut on Monday Nitro. She was a long-standing veteran of the first class of Gaia's dojo. Sonoki Kato, the girl in blue, was also um, a member of that first class. They were about equal standards. They were both about five years into their careers, and they just go hell for leather in a straight-up wrestling match for 60 minutes and 38 seconds. You don't see this very often. If you look back to the mid-1980s when all the young girls in El Japan women were really trying so, so hard in their rookie matches, it's a bit like that. It's a bit ridiculous, the speed of this particular matchup. Um, but I loved it because I'm a big fan of Umatsu and a big fan of Kato. Tanoki Kato still wrestling. She's one of the main babyface draws for Oz Academy. Umatsu retired a couple of years ago. She still comes out of retirement occasionally to say goodbye to a friend or two. Uh, but she is a, a retired wrestler these days. Has shoulders like you wouldn't believe, like the back of a Mack truck. She had never seen wrestlers so broad on somebody so slight. She's incredible. And Tanoki Kato is still a fired-up babyface technica, and she does incredible things. What's your thoughts on this matchup, John? So I instantly sort of pointed out Joshi violence meets technical wrestling. This kind of kick-started that. Because I think the video we were watching, the first thing you see on it is um, a splash getting reversed into a Kimura lock, and it just doesn't <laughs> slow down from there. It's Another thing I noticed about... In fact, a lot of these matches is pretty much every wrestler in here knows how to kick, which is something that's so easy to mess up in wrestling. It sounds simple, but having an amazing kick is just so much fun to watch, especially when Kato just starts kicking. I can't pronounce it. Uematsu. Uematsu? Yeah. I'm terrible with names, so I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Oh, there he is. But yeah. Uematsu. Uematsu. Just that's kicking her in the head, and I was just kind of like, oh, 
Oh no. <laughs> but you're definitely right. Well, there is I... a, an air of desperation to the whole thing. A lot. It feels like a proving match, despite the fact you said they're both sort of veterans of their Gaia class. Yeah, uh, Toshiyu Uematsu. By this point, I'd been watching wrestling for four years because she was the WCW Cruiserweight Women's Champion. Believe it or not. In fact, I remember her. Women's Champion. There was a tournament for the Cruiserweight Women's Championship, and it was between three girls from Gaia. I think it was Uematsu Kato, uh, Mako Satomura, and somebody else they had on their books, whose name I can't remember. And they had a tournament on Monday Nitro. And uh, Satomura faced Uematsu in the final, I believe, and Uematsu won. And she was the junior heavyweight. Cruiserweight Women's Champion. Akira Hokuto was the heavyweight women's champion. It was... um, an interesting time, <laughs> as the Monday Night Wars were. Didn't quite make it work, though, perhaps the way they should have done. It was really weird as well, because Chigasu Nagayo, you know, the most famous Joshi of all time, Chigasu Nagayo, came in as the Zero character. She didn't, she didn't wrestle as Chigasu Nagayo. She like the biggest baby-faced drawer in Japanese wrestling in the 1980s. No, she came in as a heel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when in doubt, go bold. Yes, indeed. It was a bold stroke from from your from your uh, Chigasaw. But anyway, yeah, it was just brilliant, that opening match. It's well worth like that for everything. You may as well just watch that. You don't have to watch the rest of the card and it'll still be entertaining. Next up was slightly less entertaining, but I'm sure you were more happy with it, which was Kaori Nakayama, who lost to Ri in 12 minutes and 3 seconds. Now, Kaori Nakayama was a graduate of the Mayumi Ozaki School of Rule Breaking. <laughs> As Gavin Loudspeaker said at Joshi, Joshi Mania, where she runs from, from Osaka, Japan, where she runs a school where she teaches everybody the dirtiest tricks in the book, it's Mayumi Ozaki. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she wrestled Ri, who was of the FMW dojo and formerly Bad Nurse Nakamura. And if you go back to the FMW uh, FMW episode where we talked about Megumi Kudo from a couple of weeks ago. We talked an awful lot about Ray and Badness Nakamura and did explain she is now an assistant manager of a hotel in Tokyo. But in this match, she was wielding a barbed wire cane and by God did she use it. This must have been a death match because no one got anywhere near disqualified and there was blood everywhere. John, this is right up your street. What did you think? Well, I loved it. You know me, you give me barbed wire, you give me blood, you give me mer- like merciless violence. I'm I'm pretty much going to enjoy your match. <laughs> I must admit that Nakayama, who was a rookie at this point, how long has she been going on? She was a, a JWP wrestler and she'd been going for, oh, five years. She was pretty good at this point. And she was never great, technically. She wasn't like in Megumi Kudo's class, even though she was kind of taught by Megumi Kudo. But she was all right. This wasn't a technical masterclass, was it? It was just kind of like battering people. I'm pretty sure she was on the end of a chain for most of it. She was. She was getting hung an awful lot as well. It was basically a two-on-one beatdown for a large portion of what was on yeah. the Yes. Yes, because Nakayama had the support of the Gaia girls. She went with her from JWP to Gaia. So in that particular time period, and was a member of Nostradamus at the time, which was well, it gets complicated with factions. I'll explain that in a bit. <laughs> See, the way I um, 
the way I determined groups through this show was whatever it said on the um, Stars in Their Eyes style doors, is it? Oh, yeah. Opened oh, yeah. on their entrance. By God, they spent some money on production on this, didn't they? Yeah, it looked and Why? sounded great, so I'm not complaining. It was uh, Samurai TV. It was one of the big Japanese wrestling companies. They covered it. They had like six cameras set. It was fully productioned. They had sliding graphic doors and all sorts of graphics that looked quite fresh and new in 1999. They would look a bit dated now, but like for its time period, it looked better than anything else you could see. Um, but yes, we'll move on. Rhea Nakamura, 12 minutes and three seconds, perfectly serves up a serviceable matchup. And then we get to something completely different. Devil Masami, a Joshi legend, great for JWP, All Japan Wrestling, wrestled all the big names throughout the 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s against Sakura Hirota. Nine minutes and 47 seconds. Now, Sakura Hirota is arguably the world's best comedy wrestler. I adore and she was, Yes, and she, was, she is still one of the world's best comedy wrestlers. She is a mother of one child now. She goes to matches and drops the baby off with the wrestlers in the back. Go wrestle some match, kicks the baby up, and then gets on the bullet train home. Doesn't even bother changing the wrestling gear. I've seen pictures. It's remarkable. Uh, but Hirota actually looks better now than she did in 1999. I don't know what they feed Joshi, right? Because Hirota's like 43, and she looks better now than she did 23 years ago. Yeah, she's 41. And when she was 20, she didn't look as good as she does now. I don't know what they feed Joshi wrestlers on, but Paul Nakano also looks better now than she did 30 years ago. If you can explain this and explain the essence of this match, go ahead, John. So this basically seemed like Hirata didn't want to fight a woman twice her size, so tried to psych her out, lower blower, and occasionally just avoid getting hit. <laughs> yeah, this was essentially. This was just 9 minutes and 47 seconds of fun. Because Masami would just be sort of trying to choke Hirota out and she'd just be lying on the floor like, nope, don't want this. Leave me alone. (laughs) Hirota did try her level best in intimidation tactics by coming down the aisle with a painted face and um, some form of cane that kept evil spirits away. It didn't work. <laughs> this doesn't usually for her. When she was made captain of the independence team in the Sendai Girls um, Dash, Sendai Girls uh, multi company Dash tournament in 2011, she had Jaguar Kota and Minami Toyota on her team and decided they weren't intimidating enough to have the two greatest women wrestlers of all time on your side. She needed more. Um, so she got t shirts made that, with independence written on them. And one of the characters from uh, Gunsmith Cats that doesn't have an arm but has a machine gun instead. <laughs> That's amazing. And Please tell me that t- made it onto the merch store. That has they to had, be... Well, they had these t-shirts made and the only person who turned up at the press conference was Hirota. And no one else thought they would take it, it should be taken seriously by her teammates. You know, because it's like, just Jaguar Yakota, like wrestling god. Minami mm. Toyota greatest professional wrestler who's ever walked God's great earth, you know. And then they come down to ringside, take off their ring gowns, and they're wearing the yellow t-shirts with massive smiles on their faces. Oh, what a moment. Yeah, it was brilliant. And the whole of Kirk and Hall, like, exploded. Of course, they lost in the first round, but there you go. 
Yeah, her roster just doesn't have much luck, does she? He doesn't. I, I, I am desperate for Sakura Harata to give go twenty minutes with Chihiro Hashimoto for the Sendai Girls World Championship because I think Mako would actually book that. <laughs> um, you just give me the match I want now. Harata <laughs> was my biggest takeaway from this show. I'm gutted I'd never heard of her beforehand. And now you have twenty years of videotape to catch up on. Basically, if you want a match where she's actually being a serious wrestler. There is a tag match you can find on YouTube where she tags with Chigasaw Nagayo against the LCO. And she actually tries really, really hard. And you realize how good she is. But obviously, she's realized she's never going to be the girl. So she chose the path of least resistance and became a comedy wrestler. Hey, and, it works for Taguchi. And, and on the, the final Gaia show, she did a bang-on impression of Tiger Mask wrestling Mayu Miyazaki. Because they just had a laugh on the last night of Gaia. Uh, it was in nine, 2005 at Kurikan Hall. And Miyu Miyazaki wrestled Tiger Mask. But it was Sakura Hata, Hirata wrestling as Tiger Mask. That sounds amazing. Oh, it's brilliant. It's just, it's just amazing. You've got to see it. And watching, watching Miyu Miyazaki, one of the biggest, baddest heels of all time, trying to keep a straight face for 15 minutes was just a joy in itself. Speaking right? of... Speaking of, indeed, Mayumi Ozaki and Akira Hokuto defeated Los Cacajares Orientales, the Oriental bitches, Etsuka Mito and Mima Shimoda in 16 minutes and three seconds. Now, before we start, let me just ask you, how far down the moral pole do you have to slide before you're considered the natural heels against the LCO? It was quite far. <laughs> Definitely quite far. If you can outheal someone with the words bitches in their team name, you are doing your job right. Okay, yes. Yeah. So let, let's just explain. Here's the thing, right? Gaia set the standard for long-term storytelling. Okay. After stories in Gaia were brought together from stories that happened in all Japan wrestling 10 years before. Okay. So the LCO, at this point, were freelancers and were wrestling for Arceon, Gaia, and All Japan Women at the same time. <laughs> they weren't having a night off. And Etsuki Mito and Mima Shimoda were trained by one Akira Hokuto. And when Akira Hokuto came back after her excursion to Mexico with CMLL, she founded the original LCO with uh, Manami uh, Suzuka Etsuki Mita and Mima Shimoda. Now, Akira Hokuto in 1998 left All Japan Women to go to Gaia, okay, on part of the, as part of the deal that um, saw, because she'd reached 26 and she could no longer wrestle for AJW. Gaia didn't have a problem with one of the biggest and best professional wrestlers of all time being free agent. They grabbed her because <laughs> they weren't stupid. <laughs> um, and she went to, she went to Gaia. Naomi Izaki left JWP around about the same time to go to Gaia as well because she'd pretty much done everything she could in JWP. So the LCO come in, but they decide they come in as part of this bigger group called SSU. And SSU involved Akira Hokuto, Mayumi Ozaki, Yatsuki Mita, Mimi Mishimoda, um, uh, Lioness Asuka, uh, who else was a Shiako Nakashima, and Sugar Sato. Um, and that was the that was part of the deal. Originally, 
Ozaki came in, and then um, Hokuto came in, and they recruited uh, they recruited the LCO because that was a natural thing for them to come together. Lioness Asuka came in, and eventually they persuaded Nagashima and Sato to turn their backs on Gaia and join SSU. Well, as Lioness Asuka got too big for her boots in this leadership role that she'd given herself, SSU ended up breaking up, and that became uh, Nostradamus. And that was Chigusa, that was Cheku Nagashima, Sugar Sato, LCO, Mayumi Izaki, Akira Hokuto, and Ajikon. You with me so far? Yeah, I'm keeping up. Okay. After that, they became eventually, without Ajikon, Oz Academy, as in the promotion that exists today. So SSU mm-hmm. and Nostradamus are very important in the history of Joshi professional wrestling. But obviously, when SSU broke up, the LCO went with Lioness Asuka against Akira Hokuto. So this was a big grudge matchup of Akira Hokuto and Mayumi Ozaki, the two biggest heels in Joshi wrestling ever, against Los Kakaharas Orientales, Atsuki Mita and Mima Shimoda, possibly the best heel tag team ever. Well, I'd say the best heel tag team ever. And it was that bad. I mean, like, we made the joke last week about how angry Minoru Suzuki was because he met um, John Moxley up the aisle <laughs> at due beginnings. However, in this particular case, Hokuto and Ozaki met the LCO in the aisle. And as soon as they come through the curtain, they battered them. And it went back and forth for 60 minutes and three seconds. Actual wrestling moves didn't happen very much in this matchup. It was mainly about near falls and just violence and stunt pile drivers through tables. This was big match, high pressure. Joshi were two of the biggest teams in wrestling at the time. This is a wrestling match you have to see. It's not even that good, but you have to see it for the human drama that unfolds before you. This is just insane. This well, is what wrestling. Is the Okuto have the um, hardest head in wrestling, apparently. Yes. The amount of chairs that were thrown at it. Oh, yeah, there is some uh, stuff that we probably should give trigger warnings to, like unprotected hair shots as the LCO just fling chairs across the ring. Normally, the LCO were quite professional with chairs, but I think there was a couple of receipts that needed to go back and forth in this matchup to, to give their old boss a hard time. And the LCO, at one point, are just flinging chairs off Hokuto's school. Um, I think it happens yeah. like three times in a row. The first is to like break a pinfall. The other two are just, now nah, we're going to smash you in the face with a chair. It was it was just ludicrous, and it's like it's the way Hokuto insisted on doing things. She was she was like you know she had a relatively short career as you probably imagine, because she was constantly injured, but she was hundred percent all the time. And Ozaki was much the same, and there was blood everywhere in this matchup as well. It was just violence, absolute violence, as you'd. Ex- but equally, look at the expectations they built. They could not go through this match without somebody bleeding. Because everybody bleeded in LCO matches and everybody bleeded in Hokuto matches. So that had to happen. There was no way they could get away with it. And then they just had to commit atrocities against each other. And they did. And it wasn't necessarily as good a wrestling match as it should have been. If they'd had a straight wrestling match, it probably would have been better. However, they couldn't do that because they had reputations to protect. So what were your thoughts on this match, John? Well, from the moment that I got to listen to the full version of that electric organ entrance music for... Hokuto and Ozaki <laughs> to them charging down LCO to just yeah, as you said, all the violence. I loved this. This is my type of match. Scrappy, violent, it's probably career threatening. Just 
yeah, nice bit of ugly violence. Plenty of kicks, plenty of chair shots, plenty of people probably getting more hurt than they should should be. And I'm trying to remember if it's this match or the next one that just had the double stomp that made me sort of cry out. Because I'm just thinking, well, that's lower back problems for the rest of your life. That was the next one. Oh. But yes, as you said, they couldn't really, just based off the story you've told me there, there's nothing they could have done other than this to sort of give the payoff to something that personal and that sort of begrudging. It needed to be something like this. Yeah, it was just outstanding. It was just on another level. It really is. It's just, it's not a great technical wrestling match, but from a dramatic story point of view, you've got the four best at telling that kind of story you could find, and they just they just milk it for every moment they can. It's just outstanding. The next up was the AAAW Tag Team Title Match. Now, All Japan Women had the WWWA Championships, and Gaia had the AAAW Championships. See what they did there? A... AAW. <laughs> Anyway, the champions at the time were Chihako Nagashima and Sugar Sato, two sweet, lovely young rookie girls who were badass heels because they joined um, SSU and then later Nostradamus. And they defeated Keiru and Toshi Yamada in 15 minutes and 33 seconds. Now, Keiru and Yamada, Keiru had come from all Japan women, and Chigasa Nagaya basically picked her to be the ace of the company in the early days, or the second ace behind her. She never won any championships in, in Gaia, basically, because they kept the championships to a minimum. There was a junior tag title, a main tag title, and a heavyweight championship for singles. So Keiru was kind of like, she wasn't going to win. She won the tag team title a couple of times, I think. So she, Yumada, had come in from AJW in around about this time, same time period. She'd, had, she'd injured herself in AJW, quit for a while, but missed wrestling, and came in as a trainer in the dojo in like 1999-2000. She'd retired not long after this. She had a short run. But they put together an incredible tag team. Now, Nagashima and Sugar Sato had decided to turn on Gaia and joined, uh, well, SSU to start with, with the famous promo from Mayumi Uzaki, who walked out over to Chigasona Gaio when they beat their first opponents as members of SSU and went, they've improved, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> Which is just like... Yeah, that's a finger in the face, really is. Uh, the Nagashima were outstanding as a tag team. Keiru and Toshimado, a bit more veteran wrestlers. Keiru is still wrestling to this day. She is the top draw, well, top draw veteran for Marvelous promotion. She wrestles for Senai Girls. She has a killer tag team with Dash Chisako. And uh, she still has the best moonsault in professional wrestling. Sugar Sato still wrestles a bit. Toshiyu is retired. And Nagashima is a perennial contender for the Academy Openweight Championship. There was a brilliant feud between her and Mayumi Izaki. I think it was 2014 that headlined in this very same arena in 2014 in a hair versus hair match with Nagashima against Mayumi Izaki. There was a story told that started in this time period and the tension between Nagashima and Ozaki that happened during this particular storyline in Gaia in 2000. It was literally a 15-year pale. They left Oz- she left Oz Academy. When Oz Academy left, the well, before Gaia closed, she left what would become Oz Academy 
and joined Gaio Regular Army and asked for the forgiveness of Nagayo and spent the rest of her career as a babyface. When Gaia closed, she signed on with Oz Academy, the promotion, not the faction, and was always in the babyface factions going up against the regular army. In Oz Academy, the regular army are the heels. It works backwards to all other promotions in the world. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then there was a decree from Ozaki that the only persons, the people who would be allowed, when she, I think it was Ozaki won the championship, and Ozaki decreed that only people who who were in uh, Oz Academy regular army could challenge for the championship. So Nagashima challenged for the championship and then ended up, ended up joining Oz Academy so she could challenge for the Oz Academy championship, the regular army. It's complicated. <laughs> but there's layers. But this was an outstanding matchup. And Keiru and Yamada showing the veteran wiles, but this did include the Sugar Sato top rope, remember Nagashima actually, top rope double stomp to save a pin that was just perfectly timed, but was a thumper, wasn't it? Yeah, she sort of stayed standing for another two seconds. It wasn't just the sort of usual wrestling double stomp where you slip off into the, you know, she bloody stayed standing. I was just like, oh, God. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I, I watch people go through glass panes and stuff all the time, and I don't flinch. And then I see that, and I'm just like, ah. It's amazing what, you know, like, just certain things will do to you. You know, just like the way you react to certain things. Yeah, this was the, this was back in the day when, like, you know, Plum Marico would do like 14 double stomps in a row on somebody's prone opponent and really kind of grind her heels in when she landed. <laughs> the late great Plum Marico. But yeah, Sato and Nagashima were just something else because they were kind of essentially wrestling as babyfaces because they didn't know any other way, but they were the heel team at the time. There were so many backfists in this match. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That closing stretch, it was just backfist, 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 spinning backfist. Backfist, backfist. I'm like, I've lost count at this point. Sugar Sato is uh, the backfist was her finisher, but it was brilliantly timed as well. It didn't look as vicious as Ajikong's backfist, but it still like had its spikiness to it, and it was a proper heel move as well, not a babyface move. And clearly, she'd been learning off of Aja. Aja had been teaching her the right things to do. I'm surprised someone didn't lose a tooth. To be fair, the amount of times it was just thrown with. What looked like reckless abandon. Grit your teeth. <laughs> oh. As Dave Bentley famously told Steve, you heard that story? Yeah. Before oh, after the fact. Yes, Steve Regal was wrestling Dave Finley on Monday Nitro making his debut. And he backed him into a corner and just said, grit your teeth. And then forearmed him and crushed Steve's jaw. Because... <laughs> oh. You know, and that's what got him over as a big bad heel in in WCW. And yeah, so what can you do? Where is another match that um, featured the moonsault off the scaffolding? Yes, it is. Uh, was it Kairu by any chance, or was it Nagashima? Silver attire. Sorry. Yeah, yeah Kairu. Kairu. Yeah, Kairu is like. Well, you've seen her in Sendai Girls, haven't you? Yeah, I it's did just... recognize her. She still is that violent now, even though she wears crushed velvet corduroy uh, rather than shiny white spandex. I mean, she's teaming with Dash Chizako. She's got to be violent. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're like other levels of violence because eventually Keiru joined Oz Academy in Gaia and she became a big bad heel. Um, and she really hasn't lost that aesthetic, even though she's a baby face in Sendai Girls. She's just violent. <laughs> <laughs> Toshi Yamada is just 
Oh, she's so good. Just watching a wrestler is just like watching a Swiss clock, like precision, everything. Everything's timed down to perfectly. She's one of the best tag wrestlers I've ever seen. But she kicks land just smoothly. She does that brain kick and it looks like she's killed her opponent, but you know it barely grazed her. It's just yeah. perfect. You know. And it, it's such good level wrestle level. And the guys at Cage match give it three and a half stars, which I think is underselling it. But I think that is really, you know, where we're at. It's 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 an excellent wrestling match, and you should watch this card. You should watch this card generally, but you should certainly watch that match. And then we go into the serious business. If what has happened before wasn't serious enough, Cody, <laughs> uh... ladies and gentlemen, I give you the greatest professional wrestler in the world, Mako Satamura, challenging Aja Kong for the AAW Heavyweight Championship. Now. Here's the thing. Mako Satomura at this point was a five-year veteran. She had made her debut in WCW. She'd slowly built her way up the card and was looking to move up in the world. But the presentation of this match, even though it's Mako frigging Satomura, and she's only 20 years old, 21 years old, she'd had some success against Kong, but she doesn't have that absolute surefire certainty you see her when she steps into professional wrestling ring today. She looked apprehensive. She looked like she could do the job, but she looked like a little bit of doubt was creeping into her mind, and she kind of like shrugged off anything that was that could affect her and kind of got her head down. Aja Kong is frigging Aja Kong, and she comes to the ring like she owns the place because she does. She's Aja Kong, the AAW champion. She holds the belt up, and they go at it. And for the first 10 minutes of this match, Kong owns Satomura. She bounces her from pillar to post and Satamora barely gets any offense in and then Satamora starts to build and it turns into this thrilling professional wrestling match that has you on its edge of its seat it's a little tricky to get into because the pace is so slow and if you've watched Kong versus Satamora matches this is unusual but it was before Satamora became Mako Satamora she was baby Mako probably the last real um, appearance of baby Mako she grew up in this match she became a fully-fledged main eventer. Even though she loses, this is the day that people take notice. John, what's your thoughts on this matchup? Because it is by far the most serious professional wrestling match on this card, but it is just an astounding piece of storytelling. Oh, without a doubt. You hit the nail on the head there. The sort of 10-minute beat down to all of a sudden becoming an incredibly competitive hold-for-hold, batter-for-batter, battle-for-the-finisher type match. It's storytelling sort of yeah professional storytelling at its finest it really is and you if you want to see how to get a young baby face over this is how it's done you know we talked a couple of weeks ago about Maguni Kudo and Aja Khan when they wrestled each other over the WWWA championship back in 93 and this is seven years later and Kong's better than she was then you know Kong was on another planet then so, you know, she really, really does lay it on thick as far as getting Makos over. 20 years later, they're still best mates. They still wrestle for each other's companies and appear on each other's shows on a regular basis. And Aja Kong versus Mako Satomura is still a main event money match anywhere in the world. I don't really care what card you go on. If you can put Aja Kong and Mako Satomura, you have got a drawing card. But this just shows you how good they were back then. Azure is a step slower these days, but it's not by much. And Satomura is better now than she was then, but she was still outstanding then. 
And it's just a card you need to see this match. You have to watch this professional wrestling match. A year later, Satomura defeats Aja Kong, and you should see this match in relation to that match. It's the build-up. It's her taking her baby steps to finally unseat the monster. But it really, really put pressure on Mako Satomura to perform as a main eventer, and it really made her what she is, what she is today. And this, you can see it actually happen through this match. Then we get to the main event of the evening. The Crush Girls, Sugar Sun, Agayo, and Lioness Asuka wrestle each other for the first time in over a decade, 19 minutes and 47 seconds. Now, Nagayo had been told before the match to get a match with Asuka, she would have to put everything on the line. What they meant by that was everything. Every match she ever had, every moment of professional wrestling she ever had, every title change she ever had would have to be denounced, and she would have to start again from zero. Her professional wrestling character that she that she dreamt up, which was zero. That was the idea. Her group and her faction would have to start over again. So she was fighting for her entire career. Not so much a retirement match, but a more interesting take, I think. Like, all of your achievements will be scrubbed from the record books if you lose this match. That's a bit... That's pretty personal. And that explains the ring behind us. Yes. <laughs> they were actually the physical records from AJW. Um, <laughs> I know, pretty sure no one actually kept physical records of the one loss, but there you go. It was a nice touch. I liked it. Anyway, <clears throat> these two went hell for leather. Now, Asuka was about 20 pounds heavier than in her prime, but she has so much more psychology to her wrestling at this point. She too had obviously had five years off. She was well rested. She also at this point had had a year as chief booker for Arceon after Aja Kong had quit in a fit of peak, which I'm sure we'll get to when we look at Arceon. And Chigusa Nagaya was had been lead booker for um, obviously for Gaia, so this worked out really well because Asuka had uh, plenty of experience of booking and putting matches together and telling stories. So had Nagayo. and then master professional wrestlers. They were the two most popular women wrestlers of all time. Still, probably still to this day, including people like Sasha Banks and Becky Lynch. So it just, or let's say, most over. Most popular is a misnomer, but certainly the most over women professional wrestlers you've ever seen. So it's just on an, it just it heightens everything. It's not a great professional wrestling match. But it does highlight that Gaia Arceon style that was very popular. These two were leading the bastions of that crossover shoot style with some brawling. It isn't aerial. It's a very personal professional story. John. How much do you know the Crush Girls and their history? And does it, if you don't, does it detract from this matchup? Do you see what I mean? Because obviously, I know a lot of the Crush Girls, so it kind of heightens things for me. But for you, had you much knowledge of the Crush Girls going in? All I knew of the Crush Girls was the name of the Crush Girls. But I don't think that detracted anything from this match for me. I think I just looked at it a different way. That's fair enough, I think. What did you think of this matchup? See, I saw this as. Don't crucify me for this, but this struck me as a Minoru Suzuki style match, where you've sort of got the violent veteran type character, which to me was Lioness Asuka, just pummeling the hell out of Nagayo and then forcing them to come back all the time. So that's what Nagayo was continuously doing. She was continuously sort of fighting upwards and then just decimating Asuka. Yeah, no, I would completely agree with you. You also have to bear in mind that Asuka and Chigusa Nagayo had actually been wrestling longer than Minoru Suzuki, but they came along at the same time. 
So that philosophy, I mean, Jiagi Yokota taught those two how to wrestle, and she was a technical shoot-based wrestler. There was a lot of influence on a, from Akira Maeda, who was one of Suzuki's mentors, and Yoshiaki Fujiwara, who was one of Suzuki's mentors. They had a big influence on the Crush Girls. And if you watch the Crush Girls wrestle in the 80s, it's arena swimsuits, shoot shoes, kick pads. They wrestle very much in that shoot-based vein, the Minoru Suzuki's wheelhouse. You know, it's, it's very much like that, like that. And just as an aside, uh, back in the day when they were in Noah, uh, Takiyama and Minoru Suzuki actually did a Crush Girls impression on one Noah show. That's probably why I enjoyed this so much then. <laughs> these big, people, big like, these two were part of like Suzuki's sort of what he classes as his style now, but was more their style back in the day. Yeah. And I always loved that sort of mix of brawling and just, hey, beat the hell out of each other. Yeah, it's um it's how can I put it? It's just it's just really well done. It's just the best two wrestling storytellers and you you kind of like you get this thing in your head that metadata i know about these two wrestlers you know that they went to hell and back against the dome they wrestled Dunk matsumoto in ultra violent blood brawl back in 1987 they wrestled each other to a standstill in 1989 the sisterhood this joyous celebration of what it was to be a professional wrestler the hit records the tv appearances the documentaries they made there's all this stuff that's for them together, and then you see them wrestling each other. But the crowd has grown up with them. The crowd in this particular case is it's still women, largely, like it was back in the 80s and the 90s. But they're older. They've got kids themselves. They're a bit more mature. There's a lot more men in the audience because it's really good wrestling. You know, whereas the AJW era of the 1980s that we've looked at on the show really appealed to that, appealed to that teenage female audience. And here, 15 years later, those 15-year-old girls are 30 years old, you know, or 10 years later, these, they're 25 years old. They've got kids, they've got families, they're bringing their girls and their husbands to the show. So it's a very different dynamic, but it's the same fans that they wrestled in front of 10 years before. And all of this kind of builds up for me, and you see it and how it plays out and why it's such a strong human drama and why I think Oz Academy works today because they learned their lessons from this. Long-term invested storytelling will pay off for you in the end. Maybe not at a shorter rate. You know, it's maybe like it's kind of like the hot shotting thing, isn't it? Like if you hot shot stuff, you get paid more, but you only get paid for a certain amount of time. Whereas with this, this is long-term investment for everyone in the company. Long-term investment for the wrestlers and long-term investment for the fans. What did you think of it? Now I kind of put that kind of spin on it. Am I right, John? I definitely agree with you there. And I can sort of see more of the sort of personal touches you've just hinted on, why the crowd reacted the way they did a lot of the time, why the more brutal spots seemed all the more heartbreaking to certain members of the audience. There is a lot of history sort of being tall, well, brought back up and then sort of paid off. Which is something yeah. you don't see as much of now. You really don't. No, I don't think you do. I think it's, I think even in companies like New Japan, do, where New Japan do concentrate on like the long-term narrative, but they definitely don't concentrate on the long-term narrative as much as, say, Oz Academy do, because Oz Academy are building stories from like 15 years before or 20 years before. And 
I mean, you look at companies like uh, Shikara, who have, you know, and Quack is a big fan of this era of professional wrestling. He's a big fan of uh, Joshi. He's a big fan of 80s and 90s junior heavyweight wrestling. And they've they followed the same story arcs, you know, of long-term stories. You look at Shikara works in seasons, but some of those some of those stories that have payoffs are two or three seasons long, you know. And I think it's a short-form version of this. But you've got these wrestlers that, if you can keep them apart for long enough, you can tell fifteen years worth of stories with them, can't you? Definitely. I think that's a lesson you can learn from Gaia. If you invest in the beginning, the payoff at the end is much greater and for much more a long, consistent kind of format. Ellie, we've even seen this sort of thing, like, on a much shorter term, but still no less visceral with their GCW. They did yeah. that with their Nick Gage and Ricky Shane Page. Yeah, Page yeah. stole his title and just stayed as far away from Gage as he could. Yeah, and it's just a matter of getting that right and putting that together and putting it together in the right way. Well, we hope this show encourages you to go watch some Gaia, because it's good. And there will be a Gaia reunion show. Mako Satomura and Shigeslana Gaia will be promoting it. Um, they're going to get all the old girls back together for a promo show. If we find it, we will definitely review it, because it will be interesting to see. But Gaia was a fantastic wrestling company. You should go see their stuff. It's heavily influential on Sendai Girls and heavily influential on Oz Academy. Essentially, Oz Academy and Sendai Girls kind of like placed Gaia. <laughs> In that sense, when Gaia closed its doors in 2005, essentially, it's a bit like ECW. ECW closed and Ring of Honor and Chikara had to open to replace it, as well as CZW. It took three companies to replace ECW. Well, it only took two companies to replace Gaia. But yeah, that's kind of like the way, way it works um, and the, the, the kind of influence it's had. Of course, well, Marvelous again is still going, so obviously that's kind of the follow-on from Gaia for Chigasaw and Gaia, but it's a very different company to what Gaia was. But anywho, thank you very much for listening to us today on Beginner's Guide to Professional Wrestling from Japan. I would like to thank my guest, Mr. John Dinsdale. Where can we find you on your social medias, John? Well, you can find me on Twitter at John Deathman, the edgiest Twitter handle you'll find. Obviously, <laughs> I work alongside Mr. Trubany here at Steel Chair, where I tend to cover MLW, NXT UK, and death matches. Uh, yeah, I think that's about it. I don't really have a whole lot. Fair enough. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. You can find the show at Troopany Show on Twitter. And you can find us on Patreon and Facebook, The Troopany Show. You can go to Patreon and keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone. If you pledge to us, that would be lovely. We'd like that a lot. Helps with the running costs. And you can also see our sponsors who help us pay for this in the Empire Magazine. Go find them on Twitter. And also go to powerslam.tv, our partners, where you can get a three months if you use the code mullet watch as we're getting later into the 90s there is less and less mullets and that makes me sad you're just gonna have to try and find all the flying brian pillman jr matches <laughs> funnily enough one of the uh, props who plays for england has a cracking mullet like shaved side mullet and i was watching that this afternoon don't like rugby but he did have a cracking haircut <laughs> right then we'll have some telling stories later in the week Telling stories is a bit of a problematic issue for me at the moment as far as making that podcast is concerned is because I don't have any time to record it in. So it might take a break until the next holiday I have when I can record a bunch of them and lace them out over a period of time. So I might get to on Saturday. I hate to do that because I like doing telling stories. It's a nice podcast, but I don't always get a chance to do it. 
Um, so I apologise in advance if it doesn't get made this week. On Saturday, I think I have a free day all day, so I think I will be recording a lot of telling stories. That might be my plan. So we might miss one this week, but we'll be back next week, definitely. Anyway, take care and see you soon. Bye. Goodbye.